Good morning again, sisters and brothers here in the house. Uh, it's good to be together. Uh, greetings and uh, welcome again to those of you who are with us online. It's good to be together in this way as we're able. Uh, if you're at home, uh, we invite you and encourage you as a way to connect with us, to drop your name in the YouTube chat and just say hello. That'll help us to know that you were here and it'll help us help you in some ways to be a part of who we are here and what we're doing. If you're not logged into YouTube while you're watching, viewing, participating online at home, you're welcome to uh, send us an email at info at fpcsm.org and we'd be grateful for that. It'll be a way for us to know that you're with us and a way to connect and a way for us to follow up. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and so for those of you at home, that will mean uh, remotely and concurrently. If you haven't yet gathered uh, to yourself uh, the best elements that you can at home, uh, some sort of fruit of the vine, as the scriptures say, and as near a semblance of bread as you can come to matzah bread or um, the kind of bread that we use here at home or here in the sanctuary, then I encourage you to do that at home right now. In a few minutes, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, also known as communion, also known in some traditions as the Eucharist or Eucharist, which is simply a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharisteo, which means literally good grace or good kindness or good favor of God. Uh, it's also kind of spun to mean give thanks in Greek, to give thanks, Eucharist. And this, uh, tra- the tradition of this church has always been, or at least as long as I've been here, to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, each month. Uh, lots of different churches do that different ways and at different frequencies. Some as often as every Sunday, some as rarely as every quarter. Many of us grew up in uh, Protestant churches in which trays of some sort of small pieces of bread, and at best it was bread for some of us, with quotation marks, distributed uh, up and down the pews through trays that were passed, followed by trays, those little trays of uh, small cups of pre-poured juice or sometimes wine. Some of us have Roman Catholic backgrounds and celebrated Eucharist by uh, coming forward and sharing in a common cup, either sipping out of that or drinking out of that ourselves uh, with the help of a priest and the priest giving us a wafer of unleavened bread uh, as a way to receive. We have often in this uh, congregation done a hybrid means of celebrating communion called intinction, in which individuals, worshipers also come forward, as you know, but instead of drinking out of the common cup, instead tear off a piece of bread off of a common loaf and then dip it into common cups, also known somewhat wittily as the rip and dip technique. <laughs> And then we've also had to transition to more cautious ways of celebrating communion as we do during uh, this pandemic of uh, having someone else tear off that bread for us and and, uh, doing that a little bit different ways with these uh, pre-poured packaged cups that are ultra safe. In addition, there have been other ways of celebrating communion over the centuries and still commonly today. Some congregations come forward and kneel and a priest or a pastor or other server will uh, put in their hands bread and juice as they are kneeling to receive. There are lots of churches that have done these things lots of different ways. 
some churches use wine, some churches use grape juice, some churches have offered both. Uh, this meal that Jesus instituted originally as a Passover feast was uh, and has been celebrated in many different ways by many different people following Jesus in many different cultures uh, in a variety of ways. There's not ever been a right or wrong. So this morning we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the subject of communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper. We're going to travel back and then a little farther and then a little forward to think, uh, hopefully, a little bit more deeply about this thing that we do once a month. So continuing uh, with a series of messages out of the early chapters of the book of Acts, uh, let's begin with prayer. God, we have time this morning to slow down and to be still, and to know that you're God, and to be attentive. Help us to take advantage of that time, and to enjoy, and to listen. Uh, Incline us toward yourself. Open us to your spirit. Give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that are able to see, hearts that are good and receptive soil, for the planting of the seeds of your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and immediately and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past two weeks, as we have been in the book of Acts, the early chapters of the book of Acts, we've talked about a couple of things. First, the nascent church, which we said paid attention to the teaching of Jesus and specifically what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. The nascent church received and welcomed God's empowering presence, also known as the Holy Spirit. The nascent church prayed constantly, we saw, and the nascent church bore witness martyr or martus to what they had seen, heard, and experienced in and about and with Jesus. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit's visit to this early church in the second chapter of the book of Acts on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection, and we called that the Pentecostal church. And we saw that the Pentecostal church was obedient specifically to the instructions of Jesus. They had supernatural experiences. They were willing to appear foolish in front of other people. They were outwardly focused and they were inherently resurrection centric. Everything was about the resurrection of Jesus to them. Now we get to the last few verses this morning of the second chapter of Acts. Listen closely. This is God's word. Verse 42, they, and the they refers to verse 41, the 3,000 people who on that Pentecost day after Peter, formerly shy, timid, fickle Peter, had stood up and preached to all the people who were gathered, to everyone in the public square, to everyone in the temple courtyard. And we read at the end of verse 41, 3,000 new believers were added to the number or to the gathering, the collective of the church that day. That is the they. Verse 42, They devoted themselves, all of these people, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved or those who were being rescued. The number of people who were responding to the good news about Jesus was at this time in early, early church history literally exploding. And in addition to responding affirmatively affirmatively to the amazing message about Jesus, they were also being baptized. We would have read. We read last week in verse 41. In addition to being baptized, we read here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to life together and to prayer and to a whole bunch of other things, among which was this breaking of bread quote unquote in verse 42, which referred not just to any ordinary eating, but literally in the hint is the word breaking and its mention at all. Not just in any ordinary meal, but specifically to this meal that Jesus had given them, to this meal that Jesus had instituted. Only weeks earlier, Jesus had gathered with his 12 disciples in an upper room to celebrate together the Passover feast, which was commemorated by or commemorated God's freeing of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt so long ago. But Jesus gave that already rich dinner, meal, supper, new meaning. In his first volume in his gospel, Luke writes... When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Everything that was prophesied in and about the Passover meal, all the symbolism there would be fulfilled shortly. After taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. Take, break, bless, give, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And from the earliest times, the disciples did. From the earliest times, the disciples did. When they ate and drank together, and specifically when they ate and drank bread and wine, they did remembering Jesus. I don't know how many meals I ordinarily eat in which I specifically remember Jesus. Not many. But they did, acknowledging that in Jesus Christ, God had made a new covenant that was different than any covenant before, a covenant that involved Jesus' body, that involved Jesus' blood poured out for them, poured out for us, poured out for the world. There's little doubt that Jesus' disciples didn't understand. They didn't understand. 
that evening in the upper room, that what was going on, what Jesus meant by, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But they would know, they would come to know, the next day they would understand the pieces would come together in their minds as Jesus was whipped and scourged and beaten as blood began to flow from his hands or his wrists through the nails and his feet and eventually from his side when speared with a spear. They would begin to know, things would become together, would come together in their minds, things would become crystal clear a day later what he meant that night. And then Jesus died and was buried. He was gone. But then the grave was empty. And then Jesus walked and talked. And then Jesus was alive. And after 40 days, Jesus ascended into the heavens, as we read, right in front of their faces. They were looking up. The two guys in white gleaming attire show up again. And from that time forward, Jesus' disciples began to do what Jesus told them to do in the upper room. When you eat and drink together, remember me. This is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. Poured out for you. This past Friday morning at our men's Bible study, to which all of you who are men are invited, we got to chapter 9 in our, our study of the book of Hebrews, where we read, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle or temple that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves or the blood of lambs that Israelites put on the door frames of their homes in Egypt so that as the Lord passed over, he would know to pass over their homes and to not bring death upon their firstborn. He did not enter by means of the blood or goats of, of goats or calves, but Jesus entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is made the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inherit the promised eternal inheritance. Now that Jesus has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first century church was well aware that what they practiced, what we call communion, pointed to Jesus' blood-spilling death in our place that they and we might, quote, receive the promised eternal inheritance because in Christ we've been freed from the punishment for the sins that we've committed that would otherwise condemn us, that would otherwise be held against us. Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, regardless of of exactly how it's practiced, first declares that Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, Lamb of God, died so that we might live and to receive that meal, eat that meal, participate in that meal, to do it is to affirm that apart from the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, His cross, the cross, we have no hope. No people have any hope. The world has no hope. But that in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, our future is secure. 
and certain. For Jesus' first and earliest disciples, this truth must have been inescapable. They were familiar with and they feared the Romans' crucifixion. It was always held before them. They didn't crucify people out in the woods. They crucified them along busy highways so that everyone would see, everyone would know, everyone would understand. And at least some of Jesus' disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' own crucifixion. There was no way for them to sit around a table and eat bread and drink wine together and to not remember the last meal they shared with Jesus before his crucifixion, the night that he was betrayed. And the bloodbath that would follow the next day, there was no way for them to sit around ever again a table together at which were eaten bread and consumed wine and to not remember what happened on Friday and what happened on Thursday. And Jesus intended that his followers, his students, his apprentices would literally ingest this truth. Ingest this truth. And in some mysterious way or sense also ingest him. And now we get into the area of the mysterious. And so somehow be united with him in his death, which by extension would also involve suffering. In fact, one by one, his disciples, those first 12, at least 11 out of the first 12, history tells us, would be martyred. And so when those who were still alive came together for this meal, they would no doubt remember those who used to be with them but who were no longer with them because they too had been killed in and for announcing the arrival of a new king and a new kingdom a wholly different way others around the table would have suffered injuries others in the early christian community would have certainly suffered injuries, would be physically and visibly scarred by the persecution they had suffered for proclaiming the name of Jesus and the reality and truth of his gospel. Imagine coming to communion in that way. Imagine sitting around a table in that way. But we don't think of these things much when we celebrate communion today. I don't. I don't know about you. I don't think most of us do. And yet the life and the way into which Jesus invited and called men and women always involves suffering from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Again, Acts is volume 2. Luke, the Gospel, is volume 1. We read, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, it's hyperbole. Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. If they're not willing to let go of, give up the things they most love. They cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish that tower, everyone will see it and ridicule you, saying that person began to build and wasn't able to finish or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Of course. 
In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It's unfortunate that in many quarters today, a Christian has been effectively, or being a Christian has been effectively reduced to simply saying a prayer, to reciting a prayer, and asking Jesus to be one's personal Savior, and that's it. One has arrived. But Jesus' actual call to women and men was a call to death, or at least a readiness to suffer and die. In the 8th chapter of Mark's gospel, which we read last year. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and along with his disciples said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it someone for, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with holy angels. Meanwhile, charlatans and naive preachers for centuries, and it seems more and more so lately, have twisted the truth into a message or a gospel of prosperity, which isn't really there in the scriptures at all. Years ago, a member of the congregation gave to me this book as a gift. Thou shall prosper ten commandments for making money. It's an easier book to give to someone than a book called Thou Shall Suffer. (laughs) But the latter is closer to the message and call of Jesus, probably, at least according to the scriptures. Communion not only reminds us of the suffering of Jesus, but also invites us and calls us into the suffering of Jesus. And third and finally for now, Jesus, do this in remembrance of meal, meal, me, do this in remembrance of me, meal, also invites us into community, a different kind of community, a new community. Which is part of why we and many others today refer to this meal as communion. Yes, when we eat and drink together in this way together, we commune or we are united with God himself in and through Jesus. Yes. But we are also united with his family, with others who are in Christ Going back to our passage at the end of chapter 2 of Acts, all the believers were together. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. And so the celebration of the Lord's Supper was not really an individual practice, but instead primarily a communal one. Which is why the Reformed tradition within Christianity has long said that communion is best celebrated all together and in public rather than individually or in private. In communion, we look across the table at another imperfect being and are reminded of our own imperfections. In communion, a person looks across the table and sees another person for whom Christ suffered and died. In communion... A person looks across the table and sees another person that he or she is called to love. 
that he or she is called to forgive, that he or she is called to bless, that he or she is called to give to, that he or she is called to give up for, for whom he or she is called to suffer and even die. Live stream is great. Glad you're with us, sincerely. But live stream has its limits. It is difficult. It is difficult here. Being together physically, but it is even more difficult via live stream. To adequately capture all that originally happened in, around, and through, and at the table of the Lord. It is nearly impossible for live stream to embody the inherent one anotherness of this meal that the church has always called, along with baptism, a sacrament or a sacred mystery. And so if communion has become for us, for any of us, a dull or empty or meaningless monthly exercise or routine, we have likely lost sight of its deeper, truer, and original meaning and focused too much on either the mechanics of communion and how to do it or what's in it for me. Thus let us hear this morning the sacramental church, and I think we can call it sacramental because all of those disciples had presumably been baptized and those 3,000 were immediately baptized and that baptism wasn't the end but the beginning. And then came this meal among other things that was something they did over and over and over again. The sacramental church recognized and recognizes in the Lord's Supper. First, Jesus' suffering and Jesus' uniquely atoning death for the sins of of the world. Second, that Jesus' followers are also called into this life or this way of suffering themselves, ourselves. And then third, that Jesus' followers are not only somehow united to God and united with God in the sharing of this meal, but that they are also, we are also inherently and necessarily also united to each other with each other and for each other in Christ. Again, the sacramental church recognizes in the Lord's Supper Jesus' atoning death for the sins of the world, including all of the gruesomeness of the price that Jesus paid in that. Second, Jesus' call to his followers also to a path that includes suffering. Yes, suffering. And third, Jesus' invitation to his followers, not only to union with God, but also to a self-giving union with God's family in himself and Christ. The church, we, I, us, and Christian culture have admittedly, we confess, so institutionalized, formalized, and sanitized the celebration of this meal, in other words, communion over the centuries, that it has certainly lost some of its meaning and also some of its power that can be reclaimed. Power to draw us into God's presence, power to draw us together, power to give us courage, power to strengthen our faith, 
power also to send us out. And there is this missional aspect as well of this meal. That it doesn't just end here, but it also sends us out. It just, it doesn't just feed us, but as the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter nine, as we read, empowers us to serve the living God. To do his work, to be his hands and feet, to go out into the world. As nice as our prepackaged and sanitized elements are, may we discover in them and even in them and through them a Christ who died, a Christ who suffered, but also a Christ who lives. And may we discover again his way of suffering and life in and through suffering. And may we also experience and maybe discover again a new unity in this thing we call church, which the scriptures and Jesus treated as his lovely bride. And in all of this union and communion, May God be glorified and may we, his church, his people, his beloved, be satisfied. Let's pray. As we prepare to eat and drink together around this table, at your table Lord Jesus warm our hearts toward you open our eyes to your truth and your reality and your presence forgive us heal us restore to us the joy of your salvation Bring us one step closer into the center of your glorious kingdom. Help us in your power, in your grace, to not run away from, but to run to your open arms of love. To run to those in need of your truth and reality and goodness. To run as ambassadors and agents and vehicles, as people who bear Christ, Christophers, to and for a lost, hurting, hungry, lonely, and in-need world. Help us to make ourselves available to you, not only physically, but in spirit and in truth that your way might come among us, in us, and through us. Amen. Before the Reformation, just of church history. Before the Reformation, 
the way that most churches celebrated communion was a little like this building is set up for. The table was treated as an altar. And it was placed in the far back at a high place. Away from the people near the priest. Who served in some ways as mediator. But the reformers understood that we didn't need a mediator. A human one. Because we had Christ who has served as mediator between God and humanity. And so the table was brought out there and brought into the center of sanctuaries as much as it could be so that the church could gather around and in symbolic ways eat and gather together as a family around a dinner table around a lunch table, around a breakfast table, as we do. And so experience the closeness of God and our union with one another. Let's remember that as we eat. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant. The old one is gone. It wasn't good enough. This is a new covenant of grace in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink ye all of it. The Apostle Paul tells us through the Corinthians That whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this manner, we proclaim the Lord's death, his saving death, atoning death, sacrificial death, until he comes again, and he will, in glory. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. God, we ask that as we eat and drink together as one family, individually, but yet together, around and at a table, at this meal provided by you in your grace, that you would stir us, that you would resurrect us, that you would awaken, that you would make us alive in your spirit, that you would feed us and nourish us, and that this would be an instrument of your grace, a means of participating in your life, and a launching pad to other and greater things. We ask that you would do this by your grace, for your people, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. And so the way we understand communion is it's open to anyone who's been baptized. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. This isn't a Presbyterian table. It's the table of the Lord. And so all are invited. And particularly those of us who understand our need for a Savior, our brokenness in sin, and our want for the Lord Jesus. In just a moment, you'll be invited forward uh, a pew at a time or a row at a time and to come and grab a napkin there on the center aisle, servers whose hands are sanitized and will be wearing masks will tear off a piece of bread from the common loaf, put it in your hands, and then you may go uh, down and receive a cup at the next station on your way out and return to your seats, take off your masks, and there eat and drink body and blood of Jesus. If you prefer prepackaged elements, those are available in the corners with gluten-free bread. All things are ready. Will the servers please come forward?
Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your invitation to this glorious mystery. Unite us and continue to unite us with yourself here on earth in these bodies and in a life to come. Unite us also with one another. Make us one as you are one. Find delight in the church through us. Bring about good. Humble your people. Cause us to be always attentive to you. Disrupt us when we need to be disrupted. Give us courage when we need courage. Give us grace to walk in your way. We ask these things with gratitude and hope and joy and delight. All in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.